At this time, I'm going to read from uh, John chapter 14 as we continue our uh, dive into the I am statements of Jesus in the, in the gospel of John. We're going to be in John, like I said, chapter 14. I'm going to read the first six verses. They will be very familiar to, to many, if not all of you. Uh, if you happen to grab one of the guest Bibles coming in, we're on page 867. All right, John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And we'll stop the reading right there. Don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus told his disciples. And as we dive into this, uh, this, this passage here, and we, we haven't been, we've been working through John, but we haven't been reading through John line by line in the, the perfect order from the beginning to the end. We've been kind of jumping around over the last several months, first with the, the sign passages of John, and then now with the I am passages. And, and you'll even notice uh, next week we will be uh, dealing with uh, what is actually chronologically the last I am passage in the book of John, but, but that's not going to be the last one we treat. We're going to treat uh, one after that that's, that's back a few chapters. And so uh, if you're feeling a little discombobulated about where we are in John, um, it's okay. I don't, I don't want you to be, to be distressed by that. Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room. This is the last night of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he's having his final conversation with, with his disciples before he, he leaves them. And so he, he's telling them the things that are most important to his heart, the things that matter most. As we've been talking about in Wednesday night Bible study, we've been working through uh, this whole uh, extended uh, section here, beginning in chapter 13 and going through 17, and we've noted several times, you know, put yourself in Jesus' shoes. If you knew that tonight was your last night on earth, who would you spend it with and what would you talk about? That's the context of the conversation here. Jesus knows, John tells us back at the beginning of chapter 13, that his time to depart from this world has come. The time has come for him to return to his father. And in that context, Jesus says these things. And in the middle of that, in in chapter 14, as we just read, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And it begs the question, what is troubling their hearts? What is it about this particular moment in their particular lives that has them distressed that causes Jesus to say these words? Well, as we've been reading through John, if, if, like I said, if we had started in chapter 1 and worked our way through, we would have seen repeatedly the use of the phrase, the hour. The hour of Jesus. Starting all the way back at the miracle uh, at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. When his mother comes to him and, and asks him to, to do something to fix the problem, to meet the need, Jesus says, what is it to me? What is, what is this to me? My hour has not yet come. There's something about my purpose in this world, the reason for my coming, that, that I am here for, but it's not yet. There's something in the future that I have my eye on. 
And all throughout the gospel, we see this this repeated emphasis on the coming hour of Jesus. It is an hour that, yes, fulfills the purpose of his coming. It is an hour, we're told, throughout the, the body of John's gospel that will deal with Jesus being seized and Jesus being arrested and Jesus being uh taken away. It is an hour in which he will be glorified. And glorified along the the lines of a grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies that it might bear fruit. It is an hour, we're told, in chapter 12, 27, that brings trouble to Jesus' heart. And trouble, chapter 13, 21, to his spirit. Now, as readers of the gospel on this side of history, It doesn't take too much work to connect the dots and see that the hour that John is talking about, the hour of Jesus, is the hour of his cross. But his disciples didn't have the full picture, did they? And what they had been told, they didn't understand. They were failing to connect connect all the dots. But they know this much. At this point in their time with Jesus, here in the upper room, they may not know all that's about to happen or understand all that it means, but they do know this, that Jesus is about to leave them. And as you can imagine, that alone would be enough to bring them distress. I know it would be to me. In chapter 13, verse 33, just a few verses prior to where we read tonight, uh, this morning, Jesus says, Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. But, but listen to what he says next. As if that alone wasn't enough to bring distress to his disciples, he's going to continue the conversation with Peter there in verse 36, uh, verses 36 through 38. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord, he asked. I'm ready to die for you. Jesus answered, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. My wife and I do, I think, a pretty good job of balancing each other out. We've been married for 18 years, going on 19 in August. I think I got that number right. I pray to the Lord that I did. We do a pretty good job balancing each other out. And one of those ways that we bring balance to one another deals with are at times contrasting attitude towards issues pertaining to health or medical things. We're not always eye to eye. There's a a spectrum here. We we tend to fall on opposite ends of it a lot of times. She has that wonderful, beautiful, motherly, nurturing spirit that that is is one of care and concern and and mercy. and, and, And yet I tend to be the more sort of dismissive, you know, suck it up kind of tough dad love person. And because of that, I tend to downplay everything to a fault. It's not broken. It's just a low-grade fever. The feeling will return to your limbs momentarily. Just put a Band-Aid on it. You'll be good. This is especially true when it deals with my own health. I tend to downplay and dismiss everything. I don't, I don't pay attention like I should to, to the things my body is, is telling me or, or things that I should be paying attention to. And, and she brings great balance to me there, and, and I at times am, am there to help balance her. When I got uh, COVID the first time back in August of last year the, with the terrible Delta variant, um, 
I knew fairly early on that it was a, a pretty serious situation. It wasn't just something to dismiss. I, I know we, all of us have been trying to figure out how to think about COVID and how to have, what, what should our posture and our attitude be for it. And it's, it's still a work in progress two years later. We're still trying to figure it out. Um, but I knew right away, within the first few days, especially when it was properly diagnosed, I knew that it wasn't something to take lightly. And this especially was true on the Saturday, which was day six of my symptoms. And it was actually on my birthday of all days. I was sitting there in a, the chair feeling generally miserable as I had been feeling for the last almost week. And it came out of the blue. It wasn't prompted by anything. I was literally just sitting there doing nothing when suddenly I couldn't breathe. I, I, I was breathing, the action of breathing, but I couldn't get a breath. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? I, I could tell that something wasn't right in my lungs and, it, and I was literally panting panting for breath. And, and I didn't tell a soul. I kept it to myself like I always do. I just sucked it up. I just, but as I labored to, to get oxygen into my blood and to continue to live, I, I began to grow concerned. And so I retreated upstairs to the, the guest room where I had been kind of quarantined for, for a while and laid down and tried to, you know, get myself under, under control because the body's instinct is to panic. You want to start gasping and and it's sort of a, a downward spiral of, of, of the situation. And I thought if I could just get my mind right and get my body rested and relaxed, I can get this under control. And I couldn't. I couldn't breathe. It was, it was, it was scary. And I eventually broke down and told my, <laughs> told my wife uh, something I generally don't do. I don't tell her things like I should. Um, but I had to tell her what was going on. She would go on to tell me uh, days later or weeks later, whenever, as we were reflecting on our experience, how much it concerned her, like legitimately concerned her in that moment because I was the one telling her about the seriousness of the situation. The, the dismissive one, right? The one who, who never thinks anything is to worry about. You know, you, you could, I couldn't put a Band-Aid on my inability to breathe. And as I laid there, I, I imagined all the, the possible outcomes of this, you know, being stuck in a, alone in a hospital room, gasping for breath with machines. Sucked. I mean, things that your own loved ones, many of your loved ones have experienced. It, it was nothing to, to, to treat lightly at that point. And when she saw me take it serious, she knew it was serious. It wasn't just a matter of being on different ends of a spectrum. Now, I want you to imagine how concerned the disciples would have become upon hearing that not only Jesus was leaving but that Peter would be the one to deny and betray him. I don't think anyone was super shocked when they found out later that Judas had betrayed Jesus. <laughs> they kind of all, I, I think they always kind of suspected he was a, a bit of a weasel. But Peter, oh, Peter was the strong one. Peter was the bold one. Peter was the rock. Peter was the first to speak up. Peter was the first to step out of the boat. Peter was the first to draw the sword. And yet Peter, the right-hand man of Jesus, would deny him completely tonight. I wonder how serious it got in that room when Jesus said that to him. I can imagine the other disciples were sitting there thinking, wow, if that's if that's what Peter's going to do, what will I do? Judas has run off. Jesus is leaving. 
Peter is about to fall. The wheels are coming off the whole operation, and they are distressed. And so it was. In the very next verse, after Jesus has this interaction with Peter, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Yes, I am leaving. Yes, the shepherd will be struck. The sheep will be scattered. Everything the prophet Zechariah said about this night will be fulfilled. But trust in God and trust in me. Trust in God. Trust also in me. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been going out of his way to link himself to the Father. And, and, and probably even more so than you and I tend to recognize when we read the Gospel, we need to reread it with that in mind. How is Jesus linking himself, connecting him to the Father? What is the significance of the things he's saying about his relationship to God? Jesus will tell us back in chapter 5 that he only says the things the Father tells him to say. He only does the things that he sees the Father doing. He's not here to do his own will. He's here to do the Father's will. And even right here in the Upper Room Discourse, he's going to say, not only am I saying the things I hear the Father say and doing the things I see the Father doing, and I'm here to do his will and not my own will, but guess what? The Father loves the Son The Father is in the Son, and I love and am in Him too. There is a union and a connection between the the first and second person of the Trinity that is profound. In Jesus, all of His life, all of His words, all of His signs, everything that He has been doing has been geared towards helping people to see and make this connection and grasp the implications. And if all these things are true about Jesus... Then in this moment, when they're at their greatest point of distress, Jesus will tell them, trust God, but trust also in me. I too am am an appropriate object of faith. In fact, I would go so far to say is that the connection between the Father and the Son is so great that to trust in one is inseparable from trusting the other. Jesus is helping us to see that. Not just, hey, pick and choose who you want to trust. No, trust us both, and you can't trust him unless you trust me. And trusting me is to trust him. That is the connection. That is the the relationship such as the Father has with the Son. That to trust in him and to trust in me are one and the same. So trust him and trust me. Not just when things are great and the crowds are cheering my name and all is smooth and hunky-dory and, and you can see the, the future that, that you desire for, for t- to have with me as one of my followers. Don't just trust me then. Trust me in the hard times as well. Trust me in the matters of life and death. Trust me when everything is on the line. In the moment of greatest distress, that is when you can trust me. As is often the case with Jesus The thing that scares his disciples most, well, that is the thing that is most to their advantage. Isn't that funny about the ways of Jesus? It's not just true for them, it's true for us. The things that he does, the things that he calls us to, often are the things that bring us the greatest sense of of self-limitation or the greatest sense of personal crisis, and yet those are the things where he is at work the most, not just for his glory, but for our good. Because the two are never in contradiction. 
And so here we go. Jesus says once again, yes, I'm leaving. And they're, they're freaking out. He's leaving. They're freaking out. Peter's going to deny him. The world is ending. And yet he'll go on to say in the very next breath, well, it is to your advantage that I go. It's for your benefit. Because I'm going to the place where my father is. I'm going there so that everything will be ready when the, when the time comes. I'm preparing something for you so that you can then join me there one day. Isn't that interesting? The thing that brings them the greatest distress is the thing that is most to their advantage. Where is he going? Peter, Peter and Thomas, they're all confused. We don't know where you're going. Where are you going? And he says simply, to my father's house. That is the place where, I, where, where the father dwells. That place of direct access to his presence. It's, it's none other than, than heaven itself. And Jesus is saying, trust in me in this moment of great distress. As I leave you in this hour of the cross, it is to your advantage that I go. Because the end result is that you too will have access to him. You will go where I'm going. Not the same way that I go there. But you will have access to the same person, the same place, the same destiny as I. I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. Don't, don't read those words as Jesus saying that heaven is in need of preparation. As if heaven is some sort of fixer-upper project. This isn't you know, the cosmic version of this old house. Boy, I really want to bring my disciples to the Father, but it is not ready yet. So guys, hang out for a little bit. I need to go you know, straighten things up, do a little bit of renovating, do some touch-up work here and there. He, he's not, listen, Jesus is not the spouse who's hustling to get the house in order before the, the wife comes home. That was me last weekend. Becca was away for a couple of days on a much-needed retreat, and I was home with the kids, and you can imagine, I had you know, three kids and all of you to, to deal with and a sermon to preach. And it was all just like dropped on me. And you can imagine what the house could end up looking like in a situation like that. Picture Chernobyl after the, <laughs> the problems they had there. And so I knew when, she, when it was time for my wife to come home, I wanted the place ready. Yes, because I love my wife, but also because I'm scared of her. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is saying when he says, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. As if there's something incomplete about heaven. No, listen. His going to the cross and his descent into the grave and his ascension into the sky is his preparation for you. That is the preparation for you to see the Father. Period. His person and his work are the very means by which you and I might be saved. And I love verse 4. After he says this to them, that he's going to get things ready for them, he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. Do you think Jesus is unaware of his disciples' ignorance? Of course he's not unaware of his disciples' ignorance. Jesus says this in such a way 
that it prompts the question that he wants to answer. The master teacher at work. This is a master class, by the way, for you aspiring teachers of how to, to provoke the very question that you want to answer. You know exactly the way to where I'm going, which is true, but not true in the way that they think that it's true. Look at Thomas's response in verse 5. No, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? What Jesus says next is arguably the most well-known and perhaps most important thing he ever said. Yes, you do know the way to the Father because you know me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the way to the Father because he is the truth of God and the life of God. Jesus is the truth because he is the very embodiment of supreme revelation. His very existence narrates God in the flesh. He is God's gracious self-disclosure to man as man. He's not just some abstract idea or theory or doctrine that's just kind of hovering out there in the abstract. He's a person who John will tell us, the same writer, but in his first letter, he'll say, he's the one that we, we heard with our ears. He's the one we saw with our eyes, the ones we handled with our, with our hands. We, we heard and saw and touched and experienced him. He's a real person, and yet he's more than anything I could ever have imagined. He is the God-man. And he doesn't just say things that are factual or say things that are inspired. No, he is absolute truth, ultimate reality in the flesh itself. You know, the world is full of a lot of really smart, educated people with big fancy degrees and, and use fancy words. And they, they occupy those lavish offices and they enjoy, you know, uh, you know, positions in these institutions of higher learning, and they, they're known for their, their titles and their accolades and their, their tenures, and everywhere they go, they're the smartest people in the room. And, and, and they flood your inbox, and they flood the airwaves, and, and they, they, they take over the, the, the bookstore shelves, and you know if you ever are in the same room with them that there's a class of intellect that you and I will never, well, maybe some of you, but most of you and I will never aspire to that. They're just supremely gifted with intellect and knowledge and insight. But you know what? Behind all true facts and all real knowledge and insight is one who is truth itself. And if you don't know him just a little, you don't really know anything at all. And so as it, as it pertains to the things that really matter, well, it may just be that the smartest people are the dumbest if you don't know him. Jesus is the truth of God. He's also the life of God. 
back in that all-important passage and all the way back in chapter 5 that I've quoted several times already before. Jesus says in verse 26, the Father has life in himself. He needs nothing outside of himself to exist and to be. He is utterly and totally self-sufficient. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted that same life-giving power to the Son. So what the Father is, so is the Son. And we're told back in the prologue in verse 4 that it is the Word who gave life to everything that was created. It is through the Son that you and I came into being. He is the life of God given to you. Natural life, spiritual life. All life comes from the one who is life. And because of all this, Jesus is the way for others to come to God. By what he does, yes. His, his, his movement from, from heaven to the, the manger, to the cross, and to the grave, and to the sky. But also, by who he is. He is the way because of what he does, and he's the way because of who he is. The truth in the life of God. The one who has the whole truth of God. The one who has the very life of God within himself. Life that he, by the way, offers to you and to me today. And no one, Jesus says, can come to the Father any other way. He's not a way. That's not an, what did it be, an indefinite article? Abby, did I get that right? He is the way. You can't obtain God's favor. You can't enter into God's kingdom. You don't have access to God's presence except by the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Except by trusting in who he is. Trust God. Trust also in me. Trust everything I've said about myself and put your trust in everything I'm about to do for you. When Jesus says no one may come to the Father except by me, he means no one. And that's the thing about our human nature, isn't it? We we tend to, to hear absolutes and we think, well, that applies to everybody else but me. I'm somehow the exception here. I'm sorry, guys, you're not exceptional. No one here is exceptional. You can go home and tell your, your family and friends and put on social media, my pastor said I'm not exceptional. It's true. When it comes to the most supremely important matter in all of life, with ramifications that extend into all of eternity, there are no exceptions. He is the way, hard stop, for you. A couple of months ago, I was, I know this come as a great shock to all of you who are looking at me right now, I was milling around the snacks at the information counter out, or the welcome desk out there, um, eyeing the, the sweet treats that were there for us to eat. And uh, Brian Jennings was there. I think he and Suzanne were doing duty that day, and they put the things out, and, and it was just Brian and me. Suzanne, I didn't know where she was at the moment, but uh, he and I were, were remarking about the brownies. And I made a comment to him. I said, um, you better not eat one of those brownies. 
Because if you do, I'm going to tell Suzanne and you're going to be in trouble. And he replied something along the lines of this. He said, well, not if I put it on a bed of lettuce. (laughs) Now, you and I both know that that is delusional. (laughs) Putting a brownie on a bed of lettuce does not improve the health value of the brownie. And no matter how much you deceive yourself into thinking that is true, it's not. You and I deceive ourselves anytime and in any way that we seek either truth or life apart from the one who is truth in life. You're deceiving yourself. Despite all the promises of the world, all the promises of your flesh, all those little subtle things the devil wants to whisper into your ear, nothing is true or life-giving apart from him. Period. We deceive ourselves when we look to some other way to be saved, when we look to some other means to be whole, when we look to anyone or anything else to meet the deepest needs of our lives, or when we think that the claims of Jesus somehow don't apply to me. Don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. In the midst of your fears, in the midst of all your anxieties, when when you have uncertainties about the future, no matter what's going on in your life, don't let your heart be troubled. In the small things that have little to no great significance, but oh, especially in the biggest things of all pertaining to the destiny of your soul, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust God, trust in me. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Life that you and I will now get to partake by faith as we receive the sacrament here in just a moment. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for making the life and truth that you are available to us. We who walk in darkness, we, as Paul would say in Ephesians, who once were darkness. Into the darkness the light has shone, and the darkness is confused. Lord, I pray that all the lies that we have listened to and bought into in our lives would be confounded this morning in the face of Jesus. That that the truth that he is would, would expose the lies for what they are. And that we would find in him everything that we would ever need. Moment by moment, day by day, from now until the end of time and beyond. Only Jesus. Lord, may these moments to come as we gather around your table be an opportunity for us to repent of all the, the, the ways we've pursued anything other than him. May it be a moment for us to, to realign the priorities of our, of our lives and the way that we think and the things that we love and cherish, our whole perspective. May everything be filtered through the lens of Jesus. And through him, Lord, thank you that you have made a way for us to behold you in all of your glory. We're not called to some impersonal Eternity, where we're absorbed in some uh, enlightened force or energy. No, we 
our, our, our eternity is filled with the presence of, of you, a personal God, a personal salvation made possible by the person of Jesus. Lord, may we all put all of our faith onto him to this morning and may our lives be transformed as a result. We thank you, Lord, that the things that you say to us and do for us that are the, what seem like the hardest, the things you call, call us to that are the most difficult are the things that are for your glory and for our good. Lord, we trust you. Jesus, we trust you. Holy Spirit, we trust you this morning as we finish the service through the receiving of the elements. Lord, we, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.